Welcome to Free and Fair with Fernita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues that surrounded the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Fernita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hello, Fernita. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm glad we had Thanksgiving, an unusual one, but still a time to pause and reflect on things to be thankful for. And sleep. Sleep is important, Ned. <laughs> right? <laughs> and we haven't been doing much sleep, so uh, it is, it's important to, to rest and, and come back renewed, in part because I feel like I am ready to hit the ground running, and, you know, we are... Um, kind of nearing the tail end of this, hopefully, right? So uh, the safe harbor deadline is December 8th. Uh, the electors meet December 14th. You know, I, I just, I, I feel like the end is on the horizon and that, that leaves me in good spirits. Right. I said to my wife uh, the other day, I said, election law is reminding me of what I learned about physics class, about, qu- you know, like a quantum theory, like the, the election both feels over and not over at the same time. Right. <laughs> Two right. things that aren't supposed to be true, but like it is over in one sense, but it's not over in another sense because of all this litigation. Yes. But I, I do uh, like to I really keep repeating that um, the election really was over four days after Election Day. Um, and I think that's important because for a long time we um, spent time just gaming out different scenarios and, you know, we were prepared for the worst and the worst didn't really manifest. And I think focusing on the litigation, I know that we have to, uh, but we also have to be careful not to give it too much credence because it suggests that we didn't have a successful election and we really did. And that's important. Um, but I, I steadily hear from people who are just worried about whether or not Joe Biden will be inaugurated on January, January 20th. Um, and so, so yes, there's litigation. Um, there will be litigation. There will probably be litigation on January 19th, <laughs> right? Like there will be litigation, but I do think it's important to emphasize that, um, things are technically on track, right? To, to kind of unfold like they do in normal presidential election years. It's just that this is the most litigious election that we've ever had. But in terms of procedure, I would say that things are unfolding pretty um, normally. Yeah. So, I mean, in one sense, I agree with you, but in another sense, I'm worried. I mean, I agree with you. We had this incredibly successful election and we ought to be able to celebrate that. Um, as our colleague Rick Pildes likes to point out, if we weren't so focused on the litigation, we'd be, you know, celebrating the fact that even in a pandemic, we pulled off this amazing feat of huge turnout and so forth. Um, but, you know, in our field, whether we're talking campaign finance law or other parts of, of, the, of the process, what matters is not just the reality, but the perception. And you and I might agree that this was successful and that the votes were counted properly and that Joe Biden authentically won his victory. And we may have other people that agree with us on that. But if we have a significant percentage of the American public who won't accept the reality that we think is obvious, that worries me because then they don't share our same perception of that 
reality. Um, and I also agree, I, I don't think there's any risk at all that President-elect Biden, you know, won't be inaugurated. He'll be inaugurated. But I do think there is some non-trivial risk that a significant portion of the public comes to perceive his presidency as somehow tainted when it shouldn't be perceived as tainted. And that would rob him of something that he's entitled to. I mean, if his victory is valid and Vice President Harris's victory is valid, they should not be robbed of the validity of their victory by misperception, particularly if that misperception is deliberate disinformation trying to deprive them of that authenticity or that perception of authenticities. I would go as far as saying they've already been robbed of that. And it's not fair. It's not right. You're, I, I agree 100% that they don't deserve to be robbed of it, but I would posit that that has already happened. I think the president laid the groundwork for that um, on his social media. Um, 70 million people voted for him. Um, and I think a substantial portion of that population thinks that they are illegitimate. I think that ship has sailed. And I don't think that there's any way to get that back. And really, at that point, it becomes a question of, well, how do you govern if a substantial portion of the population believes that your presidency is illegitimate? It's possible to do so. There were people on the left who thought that Trump was an illegitimate president, even though our system is one in which the Electoral College determines the winner. Um, and because he didn't win the Electoral College, you heard similar rhetoric in 2016. Not as far reaching, but let's be clear that the left is not above this, right? So it is possible to govern even when you don't have um, all of the, you know, the entire citizenry of the United States who, you know, thinking that you are a legitimate winner. Um, but another reason why I want to sort of declare the election a success is actually pretty self-interested, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, I feel like the litigation is sucking all of the air out of the room. And if we sort of declare it a success, we can have the introspection and the moment needed to reflect on what went wrong. Right. Yes, we had a successful election in the pandemic. What can we fix? It's really hard to have that conversation when you are continuously litigating who the winner is of an election that we know who the winner is. Right. It's just we, we, we keep coming back to these same questions of, OK, what can the Trump campaign do now to try to sabotage the election results? What you know, what is their next step in trying to uh, keep us from having some finality in the situation? And as long as we're focused on that, as long as we are focused on those issues and, and issues of voter fraud that um, time and time again have been shown not to have been widespread in this election, then we can't talk about the other issues, the issues of voter suppression, the issues of election management, the administrative issues, the things that did happen, the things that we do need to fix, because we're so focused on um, all of the things that are getting the most attention and sucking the air out of the room and frankly are not real problems. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I do want to talk about the things that we need to do to improve the process. And, and I think the time to do that is basically now because the energy is around the election now. So there's, a, there's sort of momentum to say, okay, we just experienced this election. So now what do we know from it? Let's improve it. But I also think we, and I share your frustration, like we shouldn't have to worry about litigation that's frivolous, that's distracting us from things that we ought to, be to, to you know, focused on. And, and maybe I'm encouraged by your saying that we can still govern in a world where almost half the population believes the winner isn't really the winner. 
and you're right that the left has done this too, unfortunately, but I, I wonder how many cycles we can go through of this. I mean, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe this is the new normal and that, you know, when a Republican wins like Trump, the Democrats will think not legitimate. We don't believe he really is the president. He's president with an asterisk, whatever. And then the Republicans will do the same to Biden and it'll be back and forth. But I fear that the whole thing will break down in 10, 20 years if if neither side kind of accepts it when the other side wins. Because it's like, how can you then really, then why bother to have elections if nobody trusts them or believes in them? I mean, maybe I'm overly pessimistic in this regard, but it just seems to me that if you completely lose faith in the system, the system's going to deteriorate. So, um, I'm, I'm, so I'm, less pessimist um no actually I'm more pessimistic in some ways but also somewhat unclear about what to do about it so you said 10 or 20 years i think we have one maybe two election cycles tops where we can continue to move in the way that we're currently moving where a substantial portion of the population questions the election outcome uh where you know a substantial portion of the population believes that um you know, there's widespread voter fraud that the system is broken, and, and you know, and, and unless their preferred candidate wins, then that shows that there's something wrong with the system. Like, you can't have a democracy if people only believe in the election when it works in their favor. You just can't. Um, but so, but I don't think it'll be 10 or 20 years. I actually think that we are, we got by this time by the skin on our teeth. Um, and I think that gets lost in the narrative because we had um, historic voter turnout. Uh, we had election administrators who d went above and beyond in trying to conduct this election in the best way possible. Uh, but I think that that sort of masked the, the larger problems that we have structurally um, that could implode if one or two pieces move in the wrong direction. Uh, we just got really lucky this time. And so, right. you know, I think that I don't I do not think that that luck will hold. I have no reason to believe that it will. I know people believe in American exceptionalism, uh, but the reality of the situation is that if we don't fix our problems, then um, there will come an election in which we, we, we won't get out of it. Uh, and in fact, Ned, as you know, ballot battles, right? We have had elections where there were really, really, really horrible things that happened. Uh, and yes, we emerged from it, uh, but it, there were times in which the system actually did break. Um, and so there's there's nothing to say that that can't happen again, right? This is not... Um, this is not a, a view that, that we should have. We should understand that our system is fragile. We should be willing to fix it. Um, but that being said, how do we fix it? And that's where I am kind of lost um, because in part, uh, part of our problem is that people believe things that simply are not true. How do you fix that? Um, well, we can... You know, we can talk about, you know, perhaps social media platforms should take a larger role, you know, we can. But to me, a lot of the suggestions out there addresses things on the margins. We have a core truth problem in this country. And so um, I don't know how to fix that. Um, you know, people write articles. It, it, we saw this at various points over the last four years. We need to better reach out to Trump voters. We better, we need to, you know, you, you saw those articles in part because they were operating under the assumption that this was about differences of opinion. It is not difference of opinion. People have, are operating in two totally different worldviews. 
Um, and so I don't know how to reconcile that. And I don't think that there are any solutions out there currently that will address these core problems. Um, I think all of the solutions just basically try to nip at it around the edges. So, um, and I think that'll be a problem too. Yeah, no, I agree a hundred percent. I mean, you know, you mentioned ballot battles and we've had these difficult elections in the past, but I'm not sure we've ever had a situation that combines polarization mm-hmm. and, and some of the breakdowns that we've seen previously, plus the denial of reality that I associate with the McCarthyism period in which I associate mm-hmm. with, you know, what Rudy Giuliani and his crew have been doing this time. I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to fight over hanging chads in Bush versus Gore or even mm-hmm. over the fight in Hayes-Tilden and other examples. Those conversations were still, I think, tethered to reality in a way that some of the conversations this year are not tethered to reality and remind me of Joe McCarthy saying, I have a list of, you know, names of the communists in the State Department, which was just fabricated, made up nonsense. Uh, But he got away with it during because of the Red Scare for four years. And Giuliani was saying, you know, there's all this fraud that, again, was just made up and fabricated. But you know, and he was unable to bring those claims in court because you can't say that in court, but he can say it on social media and have believers believe it. So we've got a, I call it electoral McCarthyism, which I don't know that we've ever, because McCarthyism, as bad as it was, didn't affect the facts about our electoral process. But if we don't share a perception of what the election is doing, how do you run an election where you can't agree as to what the votes are? Well, one thing that comes to mind, you know, and you brought you brought up some uh, interesting histo- historical examples. A lot of this reminds me of um, the era where, uh, sort of around the eighteen ninety elections bill, which would have fundamentally changed a lot of our election system. It would provided for congressional oversight of I'm not like oversight of federal elections. Um, and and the reason it comes to mind is because um, some of the debates uh, over the bill had to do with fraud in the North. Um, and so, and, and and this was also an issue in the 1870s with Hayes-Tilden, right? The Republicans justified fraud in the North because of the disenfranchisement in the South, right? They they It was almost as if one wrong offset another wrong. Yes, the Republicans committed a lot of fraud in the North, but it is okay because the Democrats disenfranchised African-Americans in the South, right? And you saw this being a pretty consistent theme throughout the 1870s and 1880s, even around the 1890 elections bill, which ultimately failed. Um, but it comes, to, it comes to mind in part because I think that the Republican Party in particular is making a similar trade-off, right? I don't, so I've been sort of watching Giuliani and some of his public appearances in the last few weeks. And and one thing that struck me is the fever (laughs) with which he talks, right? Like he really, he's really passionate about this. He believes it. But then I'm like, he can't possibly believe it, right? It's not true. He knows it's not true. He knows he's lying, right? But I think it's about that trade-off, right? If you think that the Democratic Party represents a, a, a worldview that is purely evil. Like you think socialism is evil, you think they are socialists, um, which is also something that's not necessarily true, right? But if you believe that the party, you, you hear um, certain Republican elites say this all the time, that the party could lead us to socialism. If you believe that, you believe that the lion is worth it, right? Because it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off in order to protect the country from something worse, right? And we don't talk about this like that. Instead, we focus on the lying, 
right? Because we're like, how can they keep saying that there's voter fraud when time and time again, it's been shown that there's no voter fraud? How can they keep saying these things in official filings that are not true? Right. And, you know, I think election scholars in particular have kind of joked about some of the things that have been said in some of the filings because of, you know, let's be frank, Ned, some of it is quite sloppy lawyering. Right. Um, but I think in part it, they're making a similar trade off to what the Republicans were doing in the 1870s and 1880s. Right. They felt even the fraud in the North is wrong just as much as disenfranchisement of African-Americans in the South is wrong as well. Right. Um, not to mention, you know, I understand African-Americans had to deal with, you know, violence and death and a host of other things. But just instead of sort of addressing that core problem, you can't say, well, we're just going to stuff the ballot boxes in the North. Right. But they felt like they felt justified in that, in part because of what was happening to African-Americans in the South. I feel like Republicans have made a similar trade off. Yes, they are, you know, harming our system to some extent. Uh, with their claims of voter fraud. Yes, they are undermining voter faith in the system, but in the end, it might be worth it to save the country from what they view as a worse political fate. I mean, I think your diagnosis is accurate, but I mean, you know, I grew up, you know, the, the ends don't justify the means, right? I mean, you have to, you, right? I mean, there's some things that you have to accept because they're moral requirements, whether you like it or not. So, you know, I mean, otherwise that, then you start, I mean, people, you're right. I mean, people in the American history have tried to justify stuffing the ballot box in order, because we've got to make sure that we win, even if we use these underhanded means. But I don't know, I just, I find that so, um, discouraging to think that our society would stoop to that level that you 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 justify blatant dishonesty because you don't like the other side's political views i mean in their you might you know i think republicans are entitled to their conception of healthcare policy and environmental mm -hmm. policy or what have you um i might prefer you know i disagree with Trump, the Trump administration about climate change, but you can have a debate about climate change, but you shouldn't be able to falsify the evidentiary record concerning the electoral process just because you don't like the other party's views on climate change. I mean, I agree. So I'm not, <laughs> believe me, I am not defending it, but I, I do feel like political elites are making that, that type of calculation. Um, and, and let's be honest, both party feels like they, they are better for the country than the other. And they just use different tactics for trying to prevail in elections. Uh, but when one party, we've, because of our polarization, right? The, so the polar, polarization point is really key here. Because of our levels of polarization, it is easy to demonize your opponent in a way that I think is not uh, as easy in normal times. And it's also why so many of these issues are sucking all of the air out of the room and really keeping us from addressing the things that are really wrong with the system, right? Because we've all been caught up in this game of political chess. Uh, the voters are caught up in it. The elected officials are playing it. And um, the question is, how do we emerge from that? And part of it is that we have to we have to have a serious conversation about fixing a system that will allow something like this to exist. And that's the conversation we've been avoiding, right? No one likes the, stand, the status quo, 
Everyone has a problem with it. Um, even those who think that we should still keep an electoral college have um, some problem with the system in other respects, right? A, a lot of uh, people who like the electoral college don't like the 17th Amendment, right? So, I mean, there, there are problems with our political system that people agree on on both sides. But we can't have those conversations because we're all caught up in this game of political chess. Um, so and I really, I just want off the boat. I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> right. Well, let me, if I, can I ask you a specific question to follow up on, on the, the goal of reform? Because, you yeah. know, one of the things that happened this year um, that I think is fixable is this concept of the red mirage and the blue shift. And that would, that was a product in part of, of laws that could have been different. In fact, we're, mm -hmm. you know, some of the swing states like Pennsylvania and Michigan um, fail to update the procedures for um, handling absentee ballots that even though we knew there was going to be large volumes of them this year because of the pandemic, they wouldn't allow for processing them as they came in. Uh, you know, other states like Florida and Ohio and North Carolina had done this for you know years and years and so knew how to process absentee ballots in a way that allowed them to be counted quickly and so mm -hmm. didn't cause this red mirage blue shift problem. And, and even though there was nothing fraudulent about the blue shift and these were valid votes, you can sort of understand how a public could be confused by that because the, per, the, the differential between the election night tally and the final tally was going to be so much larger this year given the extra vote by mail. So that seems to me... That's an identifiable problem and an identifiable solution that can help also mitigate this gap between reality and perception. So if I thought that the reason why we had the Giuliani problem was because of the red mirage blue shift, I would say, aha, I've got a statutory fix for that for next time. But what really troubled me this time was not just the misinformation about red mirage blue shift, but this misinformation about Dominion voting machines, because that's sort of tin foil, you know, UFO kind of nonsense. I mean, that's not, you know, that's not even like a plausible basis of confusion about red mirage blue shifts. Like, where are you getting this idea that, you know, Hugo Chavez, Venezuela votes counted not? I mean, this is like so weird. How do you, how do you inoculate the public from that kind of craziness? Uh, public education. Uh, so so part of this is the fact that people just don't know. And when people don't know, you can fill the void with anything, right? Um, we, we study election law. Uh, so of course, some things were just like, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how this works. Most people don't have that advantage, right? They don't have that insight. And so I think that uh, so, so two points. I think one, state legislatures have to be mindful of rules that can contribute to this confusion, given the fact that most voters don't know how the system works, right? So there was no reason for there to be a delay in counting absentee ballots. Uh, but it became harmful because most people don't realize that votes continue to be counted well after Election Day, right? If most people don't realize that, then that particular rule matters. Um, and so because most people don't realize that, the president can tweet and say, you know, if you count after Election Day, that should be invalid. 
Uh, whereas, you know, many people, including those who are serving in the armed services overseas, their votes come in after Election Day sometimes. So um, it's, you know, because people didn't understand it is common to continue to count. It, that was an area that was subject to misinformation. And so I think our problem is twofold. One is that we just have a, a crisis of public public education about how our elections actually work. Um, and then, two is the fact that. Um, elected officials take advantage of that gap in, in understanding and knowledge and, and peddling misinformation. Sometimes there's nothing we can do about the misinformation, right? The whole Dominion voting machine in Venezuela, and it, it, it just seemed odd, but there was a certain segment of the population who thought that that was the absolute truth, right? And then they were going after the machines in Georgia, even after the, the state uh, conducted a hand recount. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just... But because people don't understand, then things like that grow legs and it just it, it carries on. And so I think one of our focus focuses, uh, uh, particularly going into a new administration, it has to be about public education, about how our system of elections work. Right. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, the more transparency, the more accessibility, the more the public actually knows and understands the less risk there's going to be of these crazy ideas affecting public understanding. Um, you know, I, and so I do, so I do, again, one, I think, so I think we can solve the red mirage blue shift problem if we have good legislation between now and two or four years from now. Um, I do think I would like to improve the ability of the political parties and the campaigns to observe the process. I was worried that, you know, the Trump campaign asked for more access to observation. Now, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, it, it, you have to have social distancing, you have to have masks. And so that was going to be hard. And there was this whole debate in Pennsylvania about whether you were going to be 20 feet away or six feet away. I, I think one lesson to be learned is why not try to provide as much transparency as possible so that the party that loses can have been shown as much, you know, your loss, somebody's going to lose. It happened to be you this time, but you were not cheated. How do you know that you weren't cheated? Because you got to see it. So I think you need to be able to take away the argument, I didn't get to see it. I wanted to see it, but you didn't let me see it. Not that that should have affected the outcome this time, but there was enough um, semi-plausibility to some of those procedural concerns in Pennsylvania and elsewhere that I'd like to improve that part of the process so that we could eliminate any basis of complaint along those lines for next time. I'm not 100% sold on that. So I think you're right that um, more transparency is better. I also think that there's something to the idea of, you know, how close can the parties get in a way that's feasible and does not interfere with the ability of election administrators to do their job? I'm not sure if that's, it's probably not 20 feet, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I'm not sure if it's six or 12 or what. And, and I and I know that the Trump campaign complained about this. And, um, you know, in light of all of the complaints that they made, it's, it's hard to tell if this was just another thing that they threw against the wall. And I think that's where my skepticism comes from. Um, I, I, I think it's worth following up on to, to try to get a good sense of what's most effective. Um, but I also don't want to, um, I don't want to imply that election administrators weren't being in, 
transparent based off of what the Trump campaign was complaining about, in part because I know that they were also, in some states, sort of live streaming the counting and, and trying to give them access and trying to accommodate. And, you know, still we have, we're dealing with a, you know, a boatload of lawsuits that have very little plausibility. So my sense is that if not this, it just would have been something else. Um, that's not to say it's not something we should study objectively, but I don't, <laughs> you're like, let's just take, take this away from them so that they can't complain about it. Ned, I just think it would just be something else. Like that's just, that's Trump Maybe, world. No, I, I hear <laughs> yeah. you. I mean, I, you know, yeah. I think, I th you know, obviously you can't, you can't cater to unreasonable demands. Right. Um, and I think in particular in Michigan, I think some of the complaints about lack of transparency there from all that I can tell were unreasonable. I think, I think the Republican Party had adequate people in the room in Michigan. They just wanted more and there wasn't enough room for them and, and so forth. And so I think there were some unreasonable complaints. Um, Pennsylvania, I'm more... I, I, I'm more troubled by okay. what happened in Pennsylvania. I, I think the statute, as written, called for more transparency than what was actually operationalized. Okay. Um, and you know, again, I don't, I don't think there was enough of a problem to call into any question about mm -hmm. the ultimate result in Pennsylvania. But I think, um, and I, you know, there was live streaming to be sure. But I, I think Pennsylvania could have done a better job giving the Trump campaign more, you know, reasonable access to observe the process than it did. Um, and, and so, you know, looking forward instead of looking backwards, I would say, you know, try to improve the process in a way that, that figures out what's the appropriate amount of access um, and let's get that in place so that you know, we don't have these kinds of issues. I, I, I would look yeah. at that a, a little bit. The other thing that worried me a little bit about Pennsylvania, again, not didn't jeopardize the ultimate result, um, but it makes me a little queasy when some localities in a statewide race are providing curing opportunities to their voters that other counties are not. In other words, you know, we, you've, got, you've got similar situated voters throughout the state you know, all of which are faced with the same obligation to fill out their absentee ballot envelopes properly, sign it, put in their address, you know, use, you know, the two sleeves and so forth. And, you know, the Secretary of State basically invited localities to assist voters to avoid problems and so they could cure any faults. And some counties allowed for that and other counties didn't. Um, you know, that's local choice. And so I don't, again, I don't think it undermines the integrity of the election that it was done that way. But would it have been better to have a uniform statewide rule on that? Probably is my instinct, rather than to allow for that degree of county by county variation on something as, as basic as, you know, do you need to have this critical piece of information filled in? And if not, are we going to give you a second chance? It doesn't bother me constitutionally, but it does bother me administratively, <laughs> if that makes sense. So mm -hmm. I agree with you completely. I think that's a situation where a statewide rule would have been ideal. Um, it's also a situation in which we should prioritize the voter, right? Why shouldn't every voter be able to cure their ballot? Uh, but the Trump campaign was trying to make it into a constitutional issue. And our system is one in which it'll, there is some variation allowed between counties, right? Um, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, but that does not mean that 
the Constitution doesn't allow it, right? And so this is yet another situation in which we need to revisit how we do this constitutionally, how we conduct our elections and the things that we require of states and localities when they administer their elections. Um, so so I'm no argument here. You know, the idea that you have, depending on where you live, you get a chance to fix your ballot. That just strikes me as absurd. Um, but that's the system that we that we that we live with, and we should definitely fix. Right. I think even if you were to acknowledge that that's a constitutional issue, it seems to me the remedy would be to help protect more voters rather than to try to disenfranchise the voters who had the chance. In other words, it right. seemed to me that the, the the right remedy here would be to say, okay, the counties where this was not available, because that's an easy cure, right? I mean, every vote. Every voter who was not given the opportunity to cure still cast a ballot. So you actually could go back and count those votes or give them a cure opportunity. Um, right, which is not the, the Trump remedy campaign that was wasn't sought. asking for that. They were asking <laughs> to disenfranchise voters. So I, right. I think their remedy was uh, was never going to be appropriate. But I was troubled by the inequality, to be honest. Yeah, um, I'm always troubled by the the inequality, um, just in a sense that um, you know we shouldn't, to the extent that we have concerns about voters who live in different counties within a state, we should share those same concerns when it's voters on a state by state basis as well. Right. It shouldn't be. It's, it's super easy to vote in California. Um, and it's much more difficult to vote if you live in Texas. Right. And that, you know, to the extent that we hold ourselves out as a unit, the United States, American democracy, you know, we really need to have a come to Jesus moment about the fact that we let the states do things on such an individualized basis. Uh, I, I always come back to the fact that Florida has 67 different counties. And so that means they have 67 different ways of conducting an election in one state. Right. That's just I mean, that is so silly. Um, <laughs> and it just, you know, and, and so so now. But I also try to be sort of sympathetic to the arguments on the other side as well. Like I understand, especially in this time of technology, that you do have to worry about, you know, hacking and maybe it's more secure in some ways to have it um more decentralized, but I feel like we can balance both, right? We just need to revisit a, a, a 200 plus year framework that uh, permits the system that we currently live with and no one is happy with. And I think that's an important addition to, you know, yes, this is our system and no one is happy with it. <laughs> <laughs> so to go to that point, I've been the last week or so thinking, you know, what is feasible national level reform, mm -hmm. you know, for, for next time? given the fact that Congress's attitude for the most part has been to let the states do different things. That we, now we have some exceptions with the National Voter um, Registration Act, motor voter law from the Clinton mm -hmm. years, and then we have the Help America Vote Act. But, but by and large, as you say, we've got this incredibly decentralized system that doesn't have to be that way because Congress does have the power to enact federal laws for congressional elections. Um, but, you know, Senator Mitch McConnell in particular has been a big believer in local control. And, you know, we don't know for sure what the Georgia runoffs are going to do. But if it turns out that the Republicans still control the Senate, I think, you know, any bipartisan compromise in Congress is going to have to, you know, meet Mitch McConnell's approval, which means, you know, what is a realistic agenda of voting rights reform, election law reform at the federal level that would give uniformity, Florida, Texas, California, et cetera, et cetera. So before we launch into potential reforms, I want to modify the question. 
there is no bipartisan proposal that Mitch McConnell will sign off on when it comes to elections and voting. I just don't believe that. I don't think that he would sign off in part because the Republicans, despite the top of the ticket, they did pretty well this time around, right? And so he's the type where he seems to like the status quo provided that it works for the Republican Party. I'm saying that, I'm, and I'm not, I'm actually not saying that as a criticism, right? Um, because I think a lot of elected officials, uh, the reason that election reform is so difficult is because they can't envision what the system will look like under the new rules. They already, they know what they know, right? And so it's really hard, even in blue states. So New York is like notorious for how poor their election system is. Part of it is that they have a difficult time envisioning what the new system will produce in terms of election outcomes. Now, and so I think because of that, it'll be really, really difficult to get any reform package um, through Congress that that really has meaningful change. Because I know me personally, some of the things that I would like to see, I would love automatic voter registration for federal elections, right? I would love independent um, commissions uh, to draw congressional districts. Um, I love the idea of re reenfranchising uh, those with felony convictions for purposes of voting in congressional elections. I think that if you do that, states will have a difficult time trying to not have a similar reform for state elections, right? So in some ways you're bringing states along when you have um, huge change at the federal level. So I think that th some of these things have been proposed and these are things that we can do, uh, but you know, just being truthful, it is unlikely that they'll ever pass a a Republican held House because those are reforms that I, I, they that they would worry about, right? They would worry about them having a negative uh, impact on their electoral prospects. Right. So then I think you know if that's accurate, which I have no reason to disagree with it. Um, I think then realistically we're looking at reform at the state level, but for over the next few years, and and even there, there's going to be some um, playing defense because you know. I think you're likely to see some state legislatures wanting to roll back the availability of vote by mail, for example. I could be wrong, uh, you know, and and so I don't know what the prospects for. I mean, it may be that that states controlled by Democratic Party officials like California will do an even better job helping their voters out. But you know, is is um, now? In fact, I was in there was one state. Um, was it Georgia? It might have been Georgia. There was one state that was under Republican, or maybe it was maybe it was actually Kentucky. The Republican mm -hmm. um, Secretary of State there said, "You know, we expanded vote by mail, and the voters really liked it, so we better keep it and not make it just COVID." So, you know, the, maybe you know, maybe there is some room for some optimism in terms of what local officials will do in in terms of uh, of expanding voter opportunities for the sake of the voter, but. Um, you know, with the, if, if President Trump is going to be a force in politics for the next four years, you know, despite not being in office, is he going to go on his, you know, crusade against vote by mail now that he's out of office to the point where it's going to be hard for Republicans to be supportive of vote by mail as long as he's a political force raising money and you know, having primary challenges and so forth. I don't know. Yeah, I think that that's the likely scenario. I think he's not going away. Um, his voters are not going away. His supporters are his supporters, right? And Republican elected officials need that support. 
Um, and so if he continues this crusade, then it's likely that you will see the type of rollbacks that you've spoken about. So that makes me sad, if I'm being honest, because I do think that um, COVID notwithstanding, we have seen uh, some progress on um, informing voters about the, the plate of available options they have to cast a ballot in a way that wasn't true before. And that's a wonderful thing, right? Anytime you're inviting people to be involved in the process and saying, hey, you may have to work on election day, but now you can, you know about voting by mail, you've done it. Um, some states allow you to track your ballot. Some states allow you to cure your ballot. Like you have all of these different things that voters now know about that they didn't know about before. Um, and so it, it's sad if we enter a period in which you have state legislatures starting to roll that back because of uh, rhetoric from the uh, soon to be former president. So um, I don't know. I'm not but I'm not very hopeful that um, anything different will happen. I think that that will be the case. Um, and then let's not for. Oh, I was just going to make one last oh, yeah. point. Let's not forget, too, that we are entering into a period where they're about to draw districts again. And that's going right. to complicate everything. No, that's right. Absolutely true. So I've, I've been kicking around in my mind one idea, which I'd be curious as to your thoughts. And this, again, probably would need to be adopted at the state level, maybe as an experiment. Um, but it's an effort to try to find an idea that could appeal potentially to both sides. Um, and that would be to try to get rid of this whole issue of signature matching for absentee ballots, because let's face it, a signature match, it, it's, it doesn't really prove anything. So why go through all the time and expense when it's not really useful? And if we do need to authenticate absentee ballots to some degree, why can't we create some version of a voter ID regime that is fair to voters, you know, it's not a poll tax, it, it's, it, it, but, you know, and I'm trying to figure out how best to do it, but sort of a time of registration, if a voter got a unique, you know, voter registration identification number, then that number would be the number that you put on your absentee ballot envelope to authenticate it. Because then you wouldn't be looking at somebody's signature comparing, you know, the, the G that you wrote when you were 30 years old versus the G that you write when you're 50 years old, you'd be simply, you know, is the right number there? And maybe it could be a driver's license number or social security number or, again, a special number. But it seems to me that we, we ought to be able to authenticate the validity of absentee voters in a way that appeals to the security concerns, you know, from Republicans and the more conservative people out there and yet still allows for voter, you know, absentee voting in a way that, that, you know, that doesn't disenfranchise people and gets rid of this silly thing called signature matching. I love that idea. Um, as long as there, I mean, there, of course, there would have to be some extended conversation about how to accommodate people who might have difficulty getting whatever number, right? Because you always have some subset of the population who's disadvantaged by a new regime. Um, but I do think that that, you know, putting that to the side because, you know, you can't you can't avoid that. Um, I think that that's a better alternative than signature matching because you're right. Like, I don't even write my name the same way I did three years ago because I'm so busy. I just 
scribble. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's silly to expect people, you know, not to change. It, it, it depends on what, if you're tired, if it's the daytime or the night, like all these different things affect your signature. Like it's, 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 it's weird to dis disenfranchise people ba based on that. Um, so, so I like the idea of some alternative form of uh, validating um, the, the ballots. I also want to put in a plug here for getting rid of witness requirements. Can we stop no. doing that? Like, really? <laughs> um, you know, we have to stop imposing these barriers um, just for the sake of imposing barriers. I understand the importance of making people feel good about the system um, and making sure that people believe in the system. But there is a better way to do that outside of the way we're doing it. And I think your proposal is, is definitely a path forward. Well, good. That's helpful. To, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can, you know, maybe make it more rigorous and, and organized and, and put it out there and see if it gets any traction. Do you think that it would make people more open to people voting online? Right. If you have well, a unique I, you know, number. Right. I, the security issues of voter. I mean, I, I want to think that through. I mean, this, I think this might be a first step. Will we ever mm -hmm. get to the point where we can trust, you know, if we're, if we don't trust Dominion software, I, I'm a little nervous about voting online until we can, because, because then isn't the side that loses the election going to somehow think that something went wrong in the inner tubes, you know, Aren't somewhere? They already the do, they're already doing that though, right? So really that can't be a barrier to talking about other ways of voting because they're already doing that. Um, and frankly, you know, I would, if I can tr trust Chase Bank <laughs> with my money, online, um, there's a way to do it. We just have to be brave enough to have the conversation. Uh, there's always going to be some contingent of people who are pointing at the system as rife with something, right? Either fraud or incompetence or wrongdoing or, you know, whatever. Uh, but that does, that should not impede conversations about how we can better perfect our democracy because it ain't working. <laughs> we need to wrap up in, yeah. um, in a second, but one, one thought, um, that troubles me and I don't know how to fix is that you and I, I think have talked about how you, you fight about the rules ahead of time, but then once they're in place, you've got to kind of accept that they're, they are the rules for this election. Cause you know, once you start casting ballots, you, you can't change the system. And, and part of what troubled me about the discourse that we've seen since November 3rd is it's like people complaining about the rules as if you can somehow change the rules after the fact. I mean, that, again, it's like, well, wait a second. No, 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 no. You may not like it that way, but that's our, you know, that's the election that we just had. You can't fault people. So, you know, for example, in Wisconsin, um, apparently they've been using certain kinds of forms for a decade now. Um, maybe they're the wrong kind of forms or whatever, but you can't just sort of complain about the system that you've just used. Right. You were supposed to complain you know, of that ahead of time. Like the attacks on vote by mail generally now, right? In Pennsylvania. Right, right, right. right. Exactly, exactly. That's a better example. So um, I'd like to see if we can't just get a better appreciation in the culture that, you know, once, you know, once you have your system, you can't complain about the system when you're using that system for your election. But I don't know. The court can do something with that, right? You know, so they do to some extent. That's latches, right? It, you right. brought the suit too late. Um, 
So in, in some ways, Ned, I take your point to be maybe that should apply a little bit more automatically <laughs> when we have these types of challenges to uh, either rules or regulations that are longstanding. Right. Once once the first ballot is cast, you are blocked from from challenging something that has, you know, sort of has this 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 history has been longstanding and you could have brought this litigation earlier. So yeah. maybe maybe this maybe that's it. Courts need to be more universal, more uniform about not allowing those types of lawsuits to move forward. Right. And that makes sense. Well, we've put together a pretty good starting list of things to think about. And uh, as you said, we're going to be looking into you know, what actually transpires as we bring this year uh, to a close in terms of Safe Harbor and the meeting yes. of the electors and so forth. The runoff. So, and, a, and a runoff is yeah. starting in January. <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, you know, let's, let's hope that we can start celebrating like we were talking about before. Holiday seasons, even in the midst of pandemic, should be a sign of at least some holiday cheer, right? right. So let's hope we can can get that for our families, right? Yes, yes. So, so Ned, let's leave it there. And, you know, we have a lot more to discuss in, in upcoming episodes. And I hope that you get more rest, you know, still Likewise. on the, the, the Thanksgiving high. <laughs> yeah, uh, rest, rest and relaxation. Absolutely. Take care. Right. You too. That's our episode for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Eric French and Jillian Thompson at Ohio State and Larissa Puro at USC for their roles in producing this podcast. Fernita and I very much appreciate all the support we receive at both our home institutions to make this joint endeavor possible.